Welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. Today, my guest is Dr. Jenna Robinson, president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Excellence. Jenna received her PhD in political science from UNC Chapel Hill in 2012. She's the author of numerous articles published in Investors Business Daily, Forbes, The American Thinker, Carolina Journal, The Gaston Gazette, The Mountain Express, and The Raleigh News and Observer. She's taught courses in American politics at UNC Chapel Hill, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary, and Wake Tech Community College. Dr. Robinson, welcome to the Optimistic Curmudgeon. It's great to be here. Well, Jenna, I wonder if you could start us off with telling us a little bit about the Martin Center. What what is it and uh, what what work does it do? Right. So the Martin Center is a nonprofit organization in Raleigh, North Carolina, and our goal is to improve higher education. We want to renew and restore higher education. We do that by focusing on kind of a slate of issues. We're really interested in academic quality. We're interested in responsible governance, uh, viewpoint diversity and free speech, cost-effective solutions, and innovative market reform. Um, And the way that we go about uh, creating that change is, you know, we track the critical issues in higher education, look at where the problems are, and try to come up with policy solutions. We are interested in giving those policy solutions in the hands of people that can use them, legislators and trustees at both public and private universities. And we especially work at the state level rather than the national level. Well, North Carolina certainly benefits from your work. I know we've got a great uh, flagship university in UNC Chapel Hill, and the whole UNC system uh, runs in kind of an amazing way. I I sometimes Mm -hmm. will indulge uh, in thinking about just the scale of of that, and I can't, I have enough trouble thinking about how to help 25 students grasp the thought of Immanuel Kant. I can't really Mm -hmm. imagine trying to run a network of 17 universities that are all publicly funded but are also contributed to by lots of private dollars and have a mix of liberal arts and research and kind of what used to be fringe studies but are now more mainstream balanced Mm -hmm. against technological uh, innovation desires all kinds of things go into running uh the the unc system and i know that's just the one that comes to mind there are dozens of universities in this state Yeah, seems like a, so a the UNC system is a huge enterprise. Uh, well, tell us a little about your journey uh, along the way, because obviously uh, you you have a, a vested interest in uh, universities, but I, I suspect mm-hmm. that was probably informed by your journey through college and graduate school. So yeah, yeah, it was. Um, so I went to NC State for my undergraduate degree. I got a degree in political science as well as one in French. While I was there, I, I decided I would go on to graduate school, continue my studies in political science. And I also interned at the John Locke Foundation, which is a local think tank that does all different kinds of public policy. And so I got into grad school. I did my work in American politics and also methods. But while I was there, I noticed like my courses started gravitating closer and closer to the public policy side of uh, political science, specifically state politics. And at the same time, I continued to work at the John Locke Foundation. And it just seemed like, you know, I was everything I was doing was pushing me towards public policy. And I'm sure it was me doing it, you know, um, kind of subconsciously, uh, because that is where I wanted to work. And so when I finished my 
master's degree and took all my tests, I opted to start working full time while I worked on my dissertation. And I worked at what was then called the Pope Center, now called the Martin Center. Kind of realized that my experiences in higher education, both as an undergraduate and as a graduate student um, and as a student teacher, uh, could really help inform my work here. Wow, that is fascinating. Uh, you, you bring such an interesting uh, group of uh, subjects together. Uh, your political science background and your your interest in uh, policy analysis really comes to bear a lot when it comes to considering uh, the universities. I know we got together previously to uh, discuss adjunct professors, and unfortunately, that that interview is now lost to the bowels of the internet. It's it's gone. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to uh, asking you some questions today. Uh, really, as kind of as a follow up to a lecture you gave with Thales Press with uh, one of their webinars a few months right. ago. Uh, I was fascinated to hear your views on the purposes of the university and the kind of the the different things that students could get from those years. And not to say that all students do, but certainly there's a lot of, of options available. Mm -hmm. uh, so today I, I'm really looking forward to our, our discussion about uh, really what are universities for? I know right. I encountered uh, several years ago a thin little volume called The Rise of the Universities. It was a a uh, historian at Yale who back in the 1920s had been asked to write a series of lectures. We did three lectures on kind of the historical development of universities. And there's still debate today as to which university is the oldest, whether it's University of Bologna right. or Bologna. I think it's Bologna, but I'm not really sure. Uh, and then the University of Paris, uh, which which really mm -hmm. goes back the furthest. And Oxford has a has a dog in that fight, too, I'm sure. But now we have uh, universities are, are, are seemingly a bit less unique than they once were, but there are a lot more of them. Mm -hmm. And we're able to get far more people through higher education than ever before. I, I don't know if that's really a good thing. Uh, it seems like it ought to be a good thing. Uh, but with all of that as, as context, uh, Dr. Robinson, what is the purpose of higher education? Why, why do we have these things called colleges and universities? What are they for? Right. So that's a huge question. And what they are for and what they should be doing and what they are actually doing are sometimes you know, wildly disparate things. Uh, but universities, as traditionally understood, are for the, you know, the flourishing of the human person. That is why we learn. I, I talked when I gave my talk for Thales Press about Aristotle and his idea about liberal versus illiberal education. And liberal is you know, education for, um, you know, for its intrinsic value. And illiberal education, according to Aristotle, are the things we do because we want to have a career. Uh, so you know, we, we go out and we learn how to code or enter expenditures in QuickBooks, not because we love QuickBooks and coding, but because we want to be able to live a fulfilling, a fulfilling life. And those jobs are um, instrumental to doing that. And so universities these days, both because of kind of the traditions and the way that they've grown, most of most universities are uh, attempting to do some kind of balance. They're doing both the liberal and, you know, illiberal types of education, both, you know, career oriented and ideas oriented or knowledge oriented. And I think that if you want kind of a one-stop shop for all of these things, then you can you can go to a university, a good university, and and get them. But that's not always the case, and it's not always true that a university and you know kind of treating education as a one-stop shop is the best plan. 
I wonder if we could explore those terms just a little bit, <clears throat> a little bit more deeply. Um, in terms of that that illiberal education, uh, I know the the advice I heard when I was going through college was that uh, our Hillsdale College is a pretty special place, and uh, our our provost, Dr. Whalen, encouraged us to think about the fact that we were there not for job training, and mm -hmm. one of the he did give us a, a reason for that. He had a lot of other. Most of his argumentation is based on the fact that we should study things that are inherently good because they are good. But when he did stop to give us a, a rationale, he would he explained that most of the jobs that a college could train you for, you're are really outdated by the time you four, are four years later mm -hmm. and you're actually in the workforce. Most of the knowledge you've learned is really uh, it's irrelevant, and most of your job training really happens on the uh, on the job itself. Would you agree with that, or do you see some places for that illiberal side as part of the college right. experience? So I definitely think that if you try to do really specific, you know, job training, you're you're going to be outdated. You're always going to be chasing the next thing, and it's going to be really hard to do. That said, I think there there are certainly soft skills that will never go out of date. Uh, being able to write well, to be able to speak mm -hmm. and communicate well orally, um, to be able to analyze sets of data or synthesize them, things that are put in front of you, uh, to be able to read something and make sense of it, even if it's complicated, uh, to be able to have kind of some kind of facility with mathematics, right? And so now I'm describing what should be a core education, right? All of those, all of those skills that you happen to get. Um, but I want to be clear here that the skills don't happen in a vacuum. And something I see a lot right now at our colleges and universities is they say, well, we're just focusing on skills. We want to make you a good writer and we don't care how you get there. And so whether you read the classics or, you know, a modern novel, as long as you acquire the necessary skills along the way of reading and writing, we're indifferent. And so although I recognize that these skills are absolutely essential and, you know, writing skills are what I look for when I hire, um, I think that we also have to pay attention to how students acquire these skills and, you know, what, what are they learning along the way? What is, the, what is the knowledge? What is the tradition that they're being steeped in as they are learning to be good writers and thorough readers? So in that sense, it seems like there's not as sharp a divide as I might have initially suspected between the liberal education and the illiberal, because all of those things that you described, I would probably list as those are inherently worth knowing for their own sake. I mean, every every person should know how to read to a to a certain degree, and it's mm -hmm. better to be able to read more complex things and understand them correctly than to not. And the same would go for being able to express oneself clearly, uh, verbally, or in writing. Those are those skills are inherently seem to be kind of the the outgrowth of a liberal education. Is that is that fair? Mm -hmm. I think that that's fair. That if you have a very good liberal education, you will come out with those skills. Um, I think we also are kind of ignoring the professional schools when we're talking about this, you know, law school, medical school, business school, journalism school, engineering, architecture. All of these things are definitely teaching clear professional skills that don't necessarily change as fast as, you know, say, computer science. And so that is an area where a university is doing something that is clearly career focused and is is going to be meaningful and purposeful. I, I think that, you know, what someone learns in medical school, um, you know, that's not changing. 
every, um, you know, every four years or every three years. Um, there's a lot of, you know, a lot of continuity, to, despite the fact that we do have medical advances all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that those professional schools are, I think, probably the best pure examples of, you know, an illiberal education. Okay. Well, that makes sense. And there's, I was thinking that reminds me of an episode of uh, ER that my wife and I were watching where uh, one of the surgeons tells a, a student he needs to find a copy of Gray's Anatomy and study the veins in the neck. And I was struck mm-hmm. by the fact that this show from the 1990s is telling him to go find an anatomy book that's probably two to 300 years old. And that's right. still the authority in human anatomy. I mean, I'm, I'm right. sure we've learned a bit more, but the basics of what is universally true of human anatomy hasn't really changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you're dating yourself there with the ER reference, by the way. Oh, I am. Well, it's it's this is really a tangent, but it's it's increasingly hard to find good TV shows that are made today. And I we we find uh, we, my wife and I keep finding ourselves going back to older TV shows uh, that were just not filled with propaganda or bunk or uh, right. random lesbian kisses that don't advance the plot line. So mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. That, that's a tangent for another day. Um, well. Uh, if that's the kind of the illiberal side, could you expand a little bit more on what goes into the liberal the side of liberal education? You mentioned right. that we have a core. Um, mm-hmm. Speak a little bit more to those areas. Right. So the liberal side of education is, you know, from the root, uh, you know, meaning liberating. And what Aristotle thought that was liberating is using our liberty to pursue truth beauty and goodness, you know, learning to be virtuous, um, not, you know, not being libertines. Uh, so we're, we're using that liberty, um, you know, to, to, to learn and to grow. And so general education is focused on those areas um, of things that, you know, all, all people should know in order to thrive in society, learning kind of the best of what has been thought and said. Um, learning discernment, you know, that, that is the, the vision of what uh, a general education really should be. And so, you know, what are things that we all need to know in order to be, uh, you know, thriving, responsible citizens? Well, we, we need to know about our history. We need to know about our traditions. We need to know about the political system in which we live. Uh, we should probably know something about the economic system in which we live. And we should also know the language and the culture that unites us and all of the things that make us human so that we can live in community. And so ideally, you know, you learn some great books. You learn American history as well as Western civilization. Uh, you learn economics, you learn civics, and you learn enough literature that you know the illusion, illusions and the figures of speech that we all use constantly um, in communication. I think that's really that's really interesting. Uh, some phrases you used left out at me: the uh, learning the best of what has been taught and said, what we need to be in order to be responsible and thriving citizens, and then a language and culture that unites us so that we live in community. Now, these these, these all sound like great goals. Uh, I want to play devil's advocate for just a moment because uh, I, I make this case to my students pretty frequently, and uh, high schoolers are enamored with the idea of choice. They, the vast majority of high schoolers do not get to make many substantive choices about their curriculum because high school is pretty rigid. The mm-hmm. state or the, the private system that they're in establishes the criteria for graduation. They all want to graduate, so they all take those courses. 
So the idea of going to college and getting to choose from this panoply of courses is very enticing uh, to 18-year-olds. To um, but it sounds like uh, what you're describing is, is really sort of normative in the sense that uh, someone has decided there are certain things you need to know. Somebody has to pick this book and not that book is required. I will be on the test. This kind of economics instead of that kind of economics. So uh, given kind of the, the natural disposition to want to be able to choose from all the possible courses, um, why should students take the core? I guess is really my question. And why should why should students, because obviously when students are looking at colleges, some colleges really advertise, we don't give you many choices. You must take these. Other colleges represent college as this giant infinite menu. You can get your own degree, get really excited. Uh, why should students prefer that that core approach? Okay, well, I'll make, I'll make two arguments here. Um, the first is that students are not very good at determining what is the best of what is thought and said. They do not have the experience necessary to do that. And so supplanting the, you know, the wisdom of generations of scholars and thinkers for the wisdom of 18 year olds makes a lot of sense, right? As you age, you learn, you learn that more and more. The, the, um, your elders who you thought were so foolish, in fact, were not. Um, and so I think that there, you know, there's a case for doing it, doing it that way, because you know, for that reason. But the other reason is that knowledge is hierarchical. And this is from cognitive science. You learn more based on making connections to things you already know. So if you take courses kind of willy-nilly from all different fields because they look interesting or sexy or they are the hot new thing, you are not going to make the necessary connections in your own mind to have to come away with anything comprehensive. You are going to be like a trivial pursuit game instead of instead of a thriving human being with with a way and tools to view the world. And so I think knowing that this is how learning works, this is how our minds work, it makes sense to take courses in sequence. Uh, courses that build on each other, courses that talk to each other. And so that's why something like a great books program or learning through the Western tradition, kind of looking back at the, you know, the, the core that we have used in the past makes so much sense for, you know, to build someone into a thriving, um, a thriving human being with, with all the tools they need to learn more in the future when they're much better prepared to make choices for themselves about what is interesting. I think there's a lot of truth to that. And I just, I think there's also part of it that this is, this necessarily requires students to submit themselves to people who've gone before them. And uh, I, I suspect if we have any uh, teenagers listening, they're not going to like that part very much. Uh, my, my students never like it when I tell them uh, there are people who know better than you about what right. you should study. They, they want to assume that they've reached this point of, of having all knowledge uh, I think those are fascinating arguments, um, particularly the idea about knowledge being hierarchical, being a justification for why we really should um, pursue courses in sequence. That makes a lot of sense. You framed all this initially with the goal being uh, that college and universities exist in order to help students achieve human flourishing. Um, I wonder if we can go back to that phrase. Uh, what, what do you mean by human flourishing? What, what all do you, what, what does that entail? 
I, I think it entails different parts of a person's life. I mean, modern universities have mostly decided that the only part of a person's life that they care about is their their career. And so if you go to a typical public university today, it is going to be all about skills acquisition, career readiness, uh, job markets, return on investment, and you know, to, to the neglect of other things that are really important in a person's life. So you need to have you know, as, as a human being, you need to have balance in your life. And so there is, you know, there, obviously there's your, your career, but also there's, you know, there's moral formation that I th think is extremely important. There's learning discernment. And I think that is something that's very neglected in our colleges and mm -hmm. universities. And learning discernment is a huge part of maturing and flourishing uh, to be able to know what is good for you and what isn't. Um, to be able to know what is true and what isn't, to be able to discern beauty. Um, and those things universities have almost, almost universally neglected. Um, some universities are still doing a great job of this, but for the most part, universities have kind of abdicated those responsibilities. And you can tell when you look at what universities are marketing as their general education these days. Because they are they're marketing the smorgasbord, just like you said, the the almost free choice. You know, Brown University has gone all in. They tell there is no core at Brown University. You really can take everything you anything you want. Uh, but most of our UNC schools have a general education curriculum, but it's really it's like a grab bag. Take a history course, any history course, we don't care. And so they they've basically said. You know, there there is no judgment there. All of the history courses are equally valuable. All of the history courses will be equally useful to you. Uh, the university is agnostic on those questions. And so I think if a university is agnostic on those questions, you're going to end up with students who are agnostic on those questions of you know what matters, mm. what is important, what is beautiful, what is right. And, you know, that's what we see far too often. I think that's a fascinating way to look at that. If the university is agnostic on those questions of ultimate value, uh, as you were describing that, I found myself comparing that description of the smorgasbord to uh, the way Hillsdale College does their core. Um, they they have four. When I got there, I learned that there were there were more than these, but initially there were four classes that every student takes. Uh, across freshman year, you take grade books one and grade books two, first semester, second semester, and then Western Heritage and then American Heritage, first semester and second semester. Um, after those, uh, after that initial year, there's a bit more flexibility about when you accomplish different sections of the core. Uh, there's still constitution class. There is a, a fine arts class that you got to pick one of three. There's a social sciences. But those initial four classes created a campus-wide conversation where we had mm -hmm. all read the same books. We had read the same primary source documents. And I've since learned uh, at the time, I sort of thought this was a beautiful, organic thing that just happened. <laughs> Uh, of course, it's a little more complicated than that. I was back uh, last February and I got to sit down with a couple of professors and talk to them more on an adult level than as a student. Right. And I discovered that uh, there were there have been department meetings happening for 30 years where professors have kind of carefully thought through what are we trying to accomplish in these core classes such mm -hmm. that we don't preach the conclusion to the students. But there are certain conclusions that 
the professors wanted us to to reach and they they were they had certain truths they were professing that they mm -hmm. wanted to profess in an in an illustrative and attractive way so that we could see that i was talking to a good friend of mine uh clifford humphreys now down at uh, yeah. troy university uh but he was he quoted dr larry arn at one point uh saying that uh the, the college does have certain convictions. It's not agnostic. Uh, it, the college wants you to value truth and beauty and goodness. And if you don't, and if you've gone through these classes, either you've ignored everything you were taught or the college did something wrong. Yeah. So it's such a fascinating contrast. Um, I wonder if we could shift gears just a little bit uh, to are there schools that I've been I've been bragging on my alma mater, but uh, mm -hmm. are are there schools that you would say do college really really well that really do help students achieve this goal of of flourishing after their college years are completed? Right. Well, by my knowledge is imperfect. I can only look at what the core curriculum looks like and then assume the professors are doing a good job and uh, you know the the students are getting out of it what they should. Uh, but yes, there are universities that still have great books curriculum. St. John's comes to mind. Uh, Hillsdale, of course. Grove City is still doing it. Um, New College Franklin is doing it. Wyoming Catholic. I'm trying to, it, it's hard to come up with names of universities on the spot. Um, Belmont Abbey here mm -hmm. in North Carolina. Uh, you know, Thales College, I think, is going to mm -hmm. be a great example. It, you know, hasn't officially started yet. I think it starts this fall, but I think it's going to be another one that's doing it right. Um, but I think that most of these colleges, what you'll see is that they're, they're religious institutions. Mm -hmm. Because I think that somehow along the way, academia has lost the ability to make a secular case for truth, beauty, mm -hmm. and goodness. And so secular institutions have just decided they're not going to do it. You know, like we're public, we're secular, we can't, you know, we can't appeal to uh, religion or a higher authority to explain why truth, goodness, and beauty are real, and therefore we're not going to do it at all. So it seems like an obvious extension then to su suggest that if if stu if any students listening agree with you that that human flourishing is the goal, uh, that they ought to include religious oriented institutions in their in their college search, even if they themselves don't uh, don't hold to those particular expressions of religious faith. Is that is that fair? I think that is fair. Um, you know, that said, there are a few there are a few secular secular schools that have this you know, have this uh, great books orientation. Um, but, yeah, don't write off uh, religious institutions because I think they give you the tools for human flourishing, regardless of whether you identify with their religious traditions. I was thinking was, uh, that the one I was thinking of with that question was uh, Zaytuna College out in California. That uh, I don't know if you're familiar with with Zaytuna. I'm not. Uh, they are they are an uh, they're an odd duck in the uh, small liberal arts uh, bandwagons. As far as I know, they are the only. Uh, Islamic Liberal Arts College in the United States, and uh, they they hosted. You know what? Roy I Rogers. have heard of that. I have heard of that. Uh, they they hosted the late Roger Scruton uh, mm -hmm. uh, a couple of years ago before he passed away to uh, give a talk there. He did a lot of work with kind of their their foundation and stuff, and I just found it fascinating because that's that's so outside of of my tradition and places where I've studied deeply. But I find it fascinating that there there is an equal desire to hold on to a particular tradition and transmit that to students. Mm -hmm. There's sort of a there's a there's a lot of commonality in the sense of 
part of what higher education is all about is transmitting a culture to the next generation. And then I can see where it makes sense to want to do that from an Islamic perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think a lot of modern modern universities have decided they're going to they're going to focus on the discovery of new ideas rather than the transmission of old ideas. Uh, whereas I, I think a, a good university can do both. Uh, C.S. Lewis has a great metaphor for that in The Abolition of Man, where he talks about the older kind of education uh, is sort of like a, it's a bird initiating a young bird in flight. It's mm -hmm. like, hey, I know how this is supposed to go. Let me show you how this is supposed to go. Where the new style of education uh, is something completely different, and it, it tends towards more kind of indoctrination in the name of freedom. He, he didn't have many good things to say about modern education. Right. No. Uh, well, Dr. Robinson, I ask you for uh, positive examples. Do you have any uh, any particular examples that you'd be willing to share on the show of like schools that you think they do this really poorly? They are not good examples of, of human flourishing and human formation in higher education. Okay. Well, I'm going to pick on my own alma mater here or one of my alma maters um, because I know it really well and because I've already criticized their core curriculum so many times that this is not new. Uh, but I am very uh, disappointed with UNC Chapel Hill's new core curriculum that they're rolling out this fall. It is based, it, it, its reason for being is that it transmits what it calls capacities to students. Um, capacities is the new, it's the new buzzword for skills. Okay. And so it's going to teach a student to think historically or write well or analyze data. And yes, you still have to take a history course, but the purpose of it isn't to learn any history. It's to think historically. Mm. And so all of the, the, the things that I have brought up earlier in our discussion about being agnostic, about content, about letting students pick from just a huge number of courses willy-nilly, as I said, that's what UNC is doing right now. Even when they say, you know, you have to take a, you know, a literature course, it, it can be anything from, you know, introduction to British literature to Iranian prison literature. Iranian pr prison literature might be great. It might be beautifully written, wonderful prose, but if you don't have anything to build on in order to get to that point, it, you're, you're learning in a void. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, the way that they've constructed this curriculum doesn't contribute to the formation of the whole person. And also, I think that when you try to make it kind of, you know, everybody's job to sort of kind of teach writing, it, it, it might not happen. Yep. So... You know, if it's if it's everybody's job, it's nobody's job. And so I think that it UNC is they have gone too far in allowing students choice and in supplanting um, ideas with skills. Hmm. That's really interesting because I know there's there's I mean, there's and like most changes, I'm sure whoever came up, whoever crafted the initial plan carefully thought through the the sound of the phrases because thinking historically strikes me as a long ago history major as a good thing, but I can't imagine thinking historically outside of the context of taking a bunch of actual history classes. Right. Well, and no, they still have you take a history class, but it just doesn't matter which one you take. 
that's going to go back to that thinking hierarchically and thinking in a connected yeah. way. That's mm -hmm. um, once once upon a time, the medieval university uh, was was excellent in the sense that it focused on the unity of knowledge. But yeah. ever since then, I think we've been moving in more uh, more refracted directions to. Right. Right. And I think the other the other thing that, you know, because there's this huge um, number of choices that you can make, you can start with criticism instead of knowledge. And I think that's a really modern tradition at our universities that you start criticizing something before you know it. Um, and, you know, we see that in, you know, critical everything these mm -hmm. days, um, but it's very true in history. It is. I, I think there's uh, one of the pieces I always try to stress to my students, uh, particularly when I teach history, but is that um, uh, I think Peter Kraith put it best in his the way he structured his logic textbook that the the thought moves in a certain direction. You first have to understand a subject, then you can judge a subject, and then you can finally argue about the subject. Yeah. But if you yeah. jump straight to that judgment, mm -hmm. you and he he argues at least that that also parallels a movement of love that when you truly understand a topic, there's some level of love for the subject that then informs your judgment. Mm -hmm. But if you skip mm -hmm. straight to that judgment, then you end up with this harsh critique that really is, is very ill-founded and is, doesn't have the capacity to provide corrective critique. So the, all the good arguments about why criticism does matter fall apart if, they don't, if it doesn't follow from understanding. Right. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. C.S. Lewis, I think, makes the same argument in an experiment in criticism. Mm -hmm. I, I would try to quote it, but I would butcher it, so I, I will not. That's such a great, <coughs> excuse me, that's such a great little book. I love that mm -hmm. one. Um, well, Dr. Robinson, let me uh, shift gears on you once again, because uh, you mentioned that UNC made these changes uh, for, for certain reasons. I wonder if we could think for a moment about uh, the ways that policies that are set either at a national level or a state mm -hmm. level how did those work with higher education and to what extent are some of the problems you're identifying a result of, of policies and interventions in sort of a naturally existent thing that we're calling the college or the university? Right. Right. Um, so I think that a lot of the ills of the modern university trace back to the just buckets of money that we pour mm -hmm. into the field. Um, especially in the form of federal student loans and student aid. Because I think that what that does is it changes the incentives for everyone in radical ways. Um, it tells students or it pushes students towards kind of a four-year education or some kind of degree. Mm -hmm. um, you know, coupled, of course, with the conventional wisdom that tells students constantly that if you don't get a degree from a four-year university, you're a loser. Um, I think that's that's incredibly destructive. But the but the money basically pushes students towards higher education and a lot of times for the wrong reasons. Um, the money also kind of um, counterintuitively makes tuition keep rising. You know, if, if the federal money's there, universities are going to keep jacking up the price. And then if you keep jacking up the price. Everybody is going to focus on return on investment. Mm. And so those, those prices and our present concern that students take something useful are, are absolutely connected. Uh, if you're spending $30,000 a year on something, you have to make it pay. 
Like unless you are independently wealthy, you have to make it pay. And so that's why we see so many students majoring in business or, you know, looking carefully at, you know, what the payoff is going to be. It's why we see students so angry about the student loan situation, because, you know, in a lot of places, you know, college isn't paying off. And so this this constant focus on return on investment, I trace back to the, the abundance of money pushing students in college, um, you know, pushing so many students in college that we've devalued the credential. You know, when everybody has one, it becomes less of a signal. And it also means that universities are, you know, they're very hungry for those dollars. And they'll admit students who don't have the interest in academic subjects, um, who don't have the preparation for academic subjects. And so we get kind of just a, a devolution in so many ways of, of what the university is doing. And they, they try to attract students in ways that have nothing to do with academia. We get, you know, the, the gymnasiums and the student affairs offices, the student activities, the, the sports, um, you know, all of these things that have very little to do with the academic mission because universities are, are chasing these these federal dollars regardless of whether the students are, are ready or prepared or good fits for the institution. And so I think that's, you know, that's a big, uh, a big problem. But we also just have kind of a, a, a cultural problem. Like, like I said just a minute ago, everybody, parents, guidance counselors, the man on the street is saying, you got to go to college. Mm -hmm. Now, I think that that is starting to be eroded. I think people are starting to realize that there are alternative paths and that college, you know, too often doesn't pay off in the way that we think it will. Um, and people also look at, you know, there's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of statistics. They say, well, the average person who goes to college is better off than the average person who doesn't. And therefore they think, well, that means everybody who goes to college is better than everybody who doesn't. And obviously that's not true. So, and we've got a lot of things feeding into the problem, but I think that it, it, those two are the big ones, the federal money and kind of this, this cultural obsession with the four-year university. I think those are, are those are great snapshots of, of a huge complex issue where I'm thinking though it, it's exacerbated by the fact that the uh, there's a sense in which colleges have to play the game to attract students because right. well, students right. that are and I've, I I'm just thinking of a couple students a few years ago who went and looked at different colleges and they came back. I was looking for them to come back to my high school classroom and have discussions about like, oh, I sat in on this class and the professor mm -hmm. was really cool. And uh, no, they they were talking about, oh, look at High Point. They have this great rock wall. <laughs> look right, at, right. The dorms are so neat. And it, yeah, it really no, it's, it's very frustrating. And I think part of that is that when when you have to pay the money later or when someone else mm -hmm. is paying the money, you are less price sensitive. Right. Mm -hmm. If you're at the store right there and you're going to have to part with however much money it is immediately, you pay a lot of attention to how much things cost. But if there is some like future you who's, you know, fabulously well employed, who's going to pay <laughs> off the loans, it, it doesn't matter as much. And so 
our, you know, our, our false ideas about the payoffs to college, you mm-hmm. know, coupled with the fact that everybody, you know, we discount the future. That's it's basic economics. Uh, it means that students are willing to spend the money on, you know, rock walls or lazy rivers or being able to have, you know, excellent dining options on campus. Whereas if they had to part with their money right now and had to, you know, pay for it all out of pocket, they wouldn't act that way. Mm-hmm. So it'd be really, it'd be, it's probably just wishful thinking to uh, want to dream about what a college system outside of uh, federal funding would look like. Um, but I think it'd be a, it would be a very interesting, I, mean, I, I assume we would see a lot of colleges that could not make the transition. We'd see a few very elite colleges. I mean, I think uh, Harvard famously has the largest endowment of any university in the world of something over a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think Harvard would have any trouble. They're, they're self-sufficient. Right. Uh, but then there would be several other colleges that all of a sudden the real que- the question would be, how do we survive and where mm-hmm. can we find mm-hmm. programs? And right. But, yeah. Where, where do you have any thoughts as to like what policies states or the Fed could put right. in place? So this is this help? is unfortunately an issue that the federal government, you know, caused. They have they have to be the ones to solve it, really. Mm-hmm. And my preferred solution is kind of colloquial, colloquially called skin in the game. Universities should have skin in the game. And that would mean that universities have to you know, either underwrite the loans or pay off part of the default when students default. Um, In other words, you know, when loans go to that institution, the institution Mm -hmm. is on the hook for some portion of the loans, you know, after a certain period of time, you know, after it's been become clear that the student can't pay them back or something. Um, And there are different ways to structure it. I'm not married to any particular way to structure the program, but I think the underlying goal is to change the university's incentive because Mm -hmm. if they suddenly are on the hook for a portion of student loans, they're going to be a lot more conscious conscious about where they're spending their money, about whether they're selling students a bill of goods, about you know how they're providing value to their students, you know about what their costs are, you know a whole host of things they'll start caring about right now that they don't right now care about. And that's a really interesting idea because it would put it would put universities in the market as a typical market player that is responsible for their own goods in a way that they're currently not. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it would move them from being sort of addicted to federal funding to being, oh man, that's interesting. I'm thinking that would, that would vastly change the way admissions would work too. Cause all of a sudden the, and I would suspect there would be a, a downside to that would be that colleges would be much less interested in uh, giving away highly subsidized spots to low income students. Because mm-hmm. they would they would probably not be a great bet, and they would also not be very interested in students with really good personality but very bad grades. Right. No. <laughs> the, the actual I, I think academic prep would become much more significant, and the signals from earlier years that yep, this student is a good market bet for being able to pay off the loans we're going to help them secure. Those would become much more significant. So you would see a change in kind of the messaging where college is going to help those who can de- have demonstrated that they can be successful, be successful, but not that this is a free train from the lower class to the upper middle class mm-hmm. at taxpayer mm-hmm. expense. Well, I mean, that's been a, I, I won't say lie, but 
terribly oversimplified story of what college is, right? It, uh, most uh, most recent studies have showed that you know the existence of universities are in fact kind of like calcifying our our class structure rather than being engines of economic mobility. Interesting. And they're, they're just reproducing what already exists. Hmm. And I, I think if you think about how elite institutions work, for example, you can you can imagine how this is happening. Um, and so, yes, there would be some kind of immediate downsides. There were, there would be things that have to be uh, considered, but we already have um, kind of demonstrated in the higher education arena that a lot of, you know, charitable institutions, uh, ph philanthropic enterprises are willing to underwrite the education for low-income students who they think are promising. And so I think that there, you know, there would be other um, organizations and other people who would come to fill that hole. It would make a difference uh, to, to no longer rely on the government. Uh, well, Dr. Robinson, it, just in case we've intrigued any of our listeners today, uh, do you have any book recommendations for people who would like to uh, learn more about the topics we've been discussing. Right. So I think the best book to learn about kind of the perverse incentives in higher education is Cracks in the Ivory Tower. It's from a couple years ago by uh, Phil Magnus and Jason Brennan. Um, a great starting place just to learn about higher education is Restoring the Promise by Richard Vetter. And a great book about excellence, which is actually... Um, you know, unusually from a secular perspective is Anthony Cronman's latest book, um, the title of which I'm just going to completely blank on. Uh, <laughs> but it, Anthony Cronman's latest book, it's wonderful. I think it does have the word excellence in the title, but I can't remember right now what it is. Um, and so those are the three that are springing to my mind. Fantastic. And uh, my, my last question for you today, if you had uh, if you had perhaps maybe two to three minutes max to give any advice to 16 and 17 year olds who are about to go tour a bunch of schools, probably mostly in North Carolina, given the uh, typical audience for, for the show, uh, what would you advise them to look for on their tour? What kinds of questions might they ask? How can they try and figure out if this is a college that will help them flourish as human beings? I think that, you know, there's more to be discovered by looking through the curriculum than by going on the college tour. College tours are nice. Um, they get you get you to have a feel of where you're going to go. Um, but I think that, you know, really the website's more useful. Um, but I think that things to look for are, you know, you got to find that balance. I think you know, reality is unless you're, you know, independently wealthy, you have to make it pay off. So you got to find the balance. You need to find out what are the what are the majors that um, that are available at the school that are of interest to you that are that will enable you to enter into a career where you can be personally and professionally successful? And also, are there courses available that will help you um, search for truth, goodness, and beauty? Is that the purpose of the core curriculum at the university you're looking at? And if you can find a university that does both of those things, that wants you to thrive, you know, professionally and um, in your inner life, in your religious life, in your personal life, um, then that's, that university is a gem and it's a, it's a great choice. 
Uh, well, Dr. Robinson, thank you for some great advice. And thank you for joining me today for another episode here on The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you, listeners, for joining us today for this episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon. My guest this episode has been Dr. Jenna Robinson, president of the James G. Martin Center for Academic Excellence. If you like this episode, please leave us a five-star review and share it with your friends. Until next time, seek the good, discover the true, and love the beautiful. You've been listening to another episode of The Optimistic Curmudgeon, where the best ideas win. I'm your host, Josh Herring. The Optimistic Curmudgeon is a project of Thales Press. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a five-star review and share it with your friends. You can find us on three major social media platforms. Search for The Optimistic Curmudgeon on Facebook and LinkedIn, and find us on Twitter at the handle at TheOptimisticC3. This episode was edited and produced by Madison Kay, audio engineer for The Optimistic Curmudgeon. Until next time, seek the good, pursue the true, and love the beautiful.